All right. If you want to grab a seat, and if you've got a Bible, the text printed in your bulletin is Luke 6, 12 to 16. We're actually going to start at the beginning of Luke 5 and give, get a little run into that passage in Luke 6. And while you get situated, we're going to start with a group activity. Um, I'm going to describe a relationship. You tell me what that relationship is. Sound good? So two people work at the same place. One of the individuals oversees the other, delegates them tasks, and checks in on their progress. What is that relationship? A boss and an employee, right? Here's the next one. Two people uh, spend all day together in the same room. One is an instructor. The other is the learner. What's that relationship? Marriage. (laughs) Who said that? Yes. All right. I had teacher and student in mind. Some people see that differently. Last one. Last one. Two, uh, two people live in the same family. They have the ability to go from loving one another to hating one another within seconds. Teacher and student. All right. I, I've got siblings in mind. In first service, someone said husband and wife. We, we understand the dynamics in relationships, and it doesn't take like a ton of explanation in order for us to be able to identify what kind of relationship is being described. This morning, I want to describe a relationship. I want to describe what a disciple-making relationship looks like. Last week, we kind of talked about disciple-making from kind of a vision standpoint, that multiplication is the goal and grace is the fuel that propels that. This morning, we're going to look at what that actual relationship is. Entails, And we're going to do so by looking at the way Jesus interacted with the disciples. Um, and so we're going to see that in various places in the, gospel, in the Gospels. We'll start in Luke chapter 5 here in just a minute. But what I want to point out, and, and one of the big sort of takeaways from this morning, is that disciple-making is a relationship. That's central and core to what it is. We attempt... Uh, oftentimes to turn discipleship into like a program or to try to confine it into a classroom setting. And honestly, it's the churches, like church as an organization and as staffs, it's the church's fault that that's uh, been the reality and kind of the dominant mindset within the American church. And I say that because it's easier as a staff to control discipleship if you put it in a classroom. You can take attendance. You can see how many people were there. You can try to figure out who within your congregation hasn't taken the class that you want people to take. It's also easier to control what's being like taught that you put people up there to teach that you trust and that you've vetted and who have you know, the knowledge that you want them to have and you can control what's disseminated and to who and in what order and at what times. But that's not disciple-making. It could be a component of disciple-making, but it's not the entirety of the process. And the big reason why is that when we look at Jesus and the method that he used and the way that he made disciples, central to the whole thing was relationship. Discipleship is a relational process. And what we'll walk through over the course of the next few minutes is that that process begins with an invitation and it ends 
with a commission. You take disciple making out of this relational context and you've short-circuited the process entirely. You've cut it off at the knees. You might end up with something that's great instruction or a really good class or something like that. You might end up with good sort of Christian education, but what you're, you don't really have the fullness of disciple making. You've got information transfer and that can be a good thing but you don't have disciple making. And so what we're going to do this morning is just walk through what does Jesus's process look like? And my entire goal this morning is to sort of demystify this entire process. Disciple making is not rocket science. It doesn't require like an MDiv from seminary. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or some sort of like quote unquote professional Christian in order to be a disciple maker. Anyone can do this. We know that anyone can do this because the first 11 people to take on the task were largely uneducated individuals who didn't have all the resources and all the tools that are available to us today. They were confined to sort of one geographic location and yet they were faithful to the process and the church exploded in the first century. So we know that anyone can do this and I want to just walk through and show what some of the big rocks to this process are. I'm going to put this into five categories this morning. You can group some of these things together in different ways as you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus and the way that it is that he built the disciples. Um, I wanted to just point this book out. This is The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. I'm going to quote from it a couple of times this morning. He breaks this process into eight pieces, and this book is, I would say, kind of the gold standard in terms of what does disciple-making look like. He used eight categories, but he had a whole book and I have 30 minutes, so I'm going to use five because it's quicker. But um, I would encourage you, if this topic of disciple-making is interesting to you and you want to learn more about it, this is a great resource to use, The Master Plan of Evangelism. All right, let's jump in. We're going to start in Luke 5, verse 1, and the first key piece to this relational process is to invite someone into it. I'm just going to start reading in Luke 5, verse 1, and we're going to kind of pick our way forward to Luke 6, 12 to 16. Luke 5 starts like this, as the crowd was pressing in to hear Jesus, or as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put it out a little bit from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets." When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they, let, or then they brought the boats to the land, left everything, and followed him. Jump over to verse 27. 
After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Jump over to Luke 6, verse 12. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also called Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There's an invitation here. Jesus invites 12 of these individuals into a specific kind of relationship. And that invite includes some specific sort of facets that I think are important for us to point out. The first one is this. Jesus meets these people where they are. When we invite someone into these relationships, into a disciple-making relationship, we're meeting them where they are. We're not asking them to be something that they're not. These were ordinary men, fishers, tax collectors. They mostly had, you know, trade or skill sort of jobs. And Jesus meets them right in the middle of that. And he says, follow me. Come be a learner, a follower, be a disciple. He meets them where they are. He calls them into this relationship. That's the second part of this invite, that you're calling someone into a life of following Jesus. We all know how to like make friends and how those friendship relationships sort of evolve and they're kind of organic and you meet somebody somewhere and then you say, let's hang out or you start sending text messages to one another and a relationship kind of grows there. We know how that works. And in the church... We have a lot of friendship type of relationships, but a disciple-making relationship is more than just a friendship. There's intentionality that's required. You're inviting someone into a relationship for the expressed purpose of learning together what it is to follow Jesus or of one person displaying, teaching, showing what it is to follow Jesus. And then the last piece of this inviting is that it's personal. That's why I highlighted Luke 6, 12 to 16 as the text for this morning. Jesus is going to spend so much time with these 12 individuals. In fact, Jesus spends more time with these 12 than he does with every other person that he interacts with in the Gospels combined. And the longer Jesus' ministry goes on over the course of three years or so, the more time he spends with them. As you read your way through the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus' ministry goes from being very outward and it's huge crowds of people to by the end, he's really just focused on the 12. As this relationship moves, it becomes more and more personal with those 12. Why? Well, because like we talked about last week, multiplication is going to be the goal. And these 12 need to be the ones who are going to take this and run with it when Jesus is gone. And so he's incredibly intentional. He invites them into a relationship, meets them where they are, calls them into a life of following him, and then is incredibly personal with them. Don't miss the obvious there. You've got to invite someone to this. You might have people around you that you've got relationships with, and you kind of think to yourself, yeah, I'm totally discipling that person. And yet they have no idea that that's what's happening. Be intentional. 
Go ahead and call it out. A discipling relationship is two-way. It's reciprocal. The disciples had to agree to step into this. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, at multiple points, he gave people the opportunity to walk away from it. He's, I know this is hard. And if you want to leave, leave. The bar was high. Jesus knew that, and he called people into that, intentionally inviting them into a disciple-making relationship. We can't shy away from that with the people that we disciple. That it costs something to follow Jesus. That our disciple-making relationship is intentional, and it might mean that you're going to meet together early in the morning, or it might mean that you're going to read something together, or you're going to serve together, which we'll talk about more as we go on this morning. We don't shy away from the fact that there's a, we're calling someone to something when we invite them into this relationship. And we have to understand that not everybody's going to be willing to commit to that. Not everybody wants to be part of that. That's okay. It's okay. Sometimes you might try to strike up a disciple-making relationship with somebody and you invite them into that and you get a little ways into it and you find out they're not really interested. Don't take it personally. Jesus called 12. One of them, Judas Iscariot, is described as the traitor. If he didn't bat 100, you know, you might not either. And that's okay. That's okay. Paul gives the same kind of invitation to those that he invites into his disciple-making relationship. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. You aren't inviting people to be like you. You aren't making disciples of you. You're making disciples of Jesus Christ, devoted followers of Christ. And so you invite others into a relationship whereby they get this close enough view of your life that they begin to just know God deeper, that they're captivated by the gospel. Their affections become just enamored with Jesus and what he did for them on the cross. And then what does it look like to follow him? It's a relational process and you're inviting someone into that relationship. So invite, that's the first piece. The second piece is teach. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we're told this, when he saw the crowds, that's Jesus, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The Sermon on the Mount, the, probably the most famous of Jesus' discourses of his teachings, was directed at a group of 12 people in the hearing of a large crowd. But what he's doing is he's explaining to the disciples, to those 12, what it means to follow him, to live obediently with him. He's teaching. That's an important part of a disciple-making relationship you're going to have to be able to teach. What is it that we're supposed to teach? We teach who God is. That's theology. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't need to be able to explain with crystal clear language and perfect sort of understanding all the ins and outs of the Trinity and the way that that's worked from the beginning of time. You don't have to be able to sit down and teach a class on substitutionary atonement, or you don't have to be able to distinguish perfectly between Calvinism and Arminianism. But you do have to be able to teach something of who God is. What's his character like? How does he act? What has he done in the work of Jesus Christ? What does it mean that he is holy and eternal and righteous and we are finite and broken and sinful? And how do those two things come together in the person of Jesus Christ? You teach. You teach what the gospel is. You teach what scripture means. Understanding scripture, the ability to read it and apply it to our lives is at the core of a believer's everyday walk with the Lord. And part of a disciple-making relationship is helping someone learn how to do that. 
We're not born or born again with just this innate ability to discern truth from Scripture. We have to be taught that. Jesus is doing that all throughout his ministry with the disciples. You have heard it said, fill in the blank thing, but I say, this is what's ultimately true. We have to be able to teach Scripture. We need to be able to teach what relationship with Jesus looks like. He's constantly clarifying that and defining that for his disciples. In fact, that's why the, there's this striking image all throughout the Gospels of the Pharisees and the disciples. Jesus is using the Pharisees to say, this is not what it looks like to live in relationship with me. This is what it looks like to maybe think you do or to have the form or the appearance of a relationship with me, but it's not accurate. This is what it actually looks like. Here's what it is to follow Jesus. And he gives these strong sort of statements about carrying your cross and hating your mother and father, you know, like love me so much more than anybody else in your family that your love for them pales in comparison to your love for me. When we're teaching someone about these kinds of things, what we're really targeting is their heart and their affection. We're not just trying to pound knowledge into someone's head. The knowledge is good. The knowledge is necessary. The knowledge helps us understand rightly who God is and what it means to live in relationship with him. But we're targeting a heart. We're looking to take the truth of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and help make that image and that act so beautiful and so sort of like enrapturing for someone that their heart and their affections become so tied up in the truth of who Jesus Christ is that the stuff of the world just fades away. The things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what it is to teach in the context of a disciple-making relationship. It also means that we teach uh, someone to obey scripture, not just to know what it says or be able to read what it says, but to obey what it says. Maybe one of the largest gaps that exists within modern American Christianity is the gap between what we know scripture says and how we obey what Scripture says. As a society, we maybe have more knowledge of what Scripture says than any other era in human history. And yet, we often fall woefully short, not just in our obedience, but oftentimes, if we're being honest, in our attempts to even obey. We just say, you know what? I get that that's what it says. I'm not even really trying. We teach what it is to obey Scripture. Do you have to be like, a, a teacher or a preacher in order to teach someone these things? No, absolutely not. I don't want to make this sound like overly simple, but if you're having a quiet time and you're spending time in the word and learning things from the truth of God's word, you can sit down with another person, open up the Bible and teach. You can do that. You don't have to be the person that stands up on Sunday morning in this role. You don't have to be someone who's on staff at a church to say, hey, I've been reading in Ephesians. Let me just show you what I'm learning. Anyone can do that. Hey, I've been walking with Jesus for X number of years or whatever the case might be, or I'm walking through this season of life. Let me teach you what it's been like to try to follow the Lord in the midst of that. You teach. The next piece is that we model. John 13, 15 says this, Jesus says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Those you enter into this relationship with are going to be close enough to your life in order to see what your life is really about. They're going to hear the things that you say, but probably more important, they're going to see the things that you do. So the natural question is, what are they going to see? 
what are you going to be modeling? Jesus made sure that the disciples saw what it was to live in relationship with God and with humanity. They looked at it. They heard about it as he taught, but they saw it as he lived. The vast majority of the stuff we, live, or we learn in life is caught, not taught. That's simple truth. We all kind of know that innately. Um, I have a, a friend, Jordan, that I run with a lot. And for a season, we were meeting at Jordan's house to take off and run because he had you know, a really young son. And, and Caleb would be down there, you know, two years old or something like that, watching us get ready to run. And Jordan and I would have this kind of routine that we would go through all the time before we stepped out the door. And one day we're doing some leg swings. We've got like, you know, hand on the wall, swinging our leg. And, and I look kind of behind Jordan and there's two-year-old Caleb, like, ooh, 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 getting ready for nap time, you know? <laughs> we had never told him to do that. We had never said, hey, Caleb, do some leg swings, but it was just modeled. He saw it. And so he caught that and he just thought, oh, this is what we do when Mr. Tim comes over. <laughs> we do leg swings. Robert Coleman in the Master Plan of Evangelism says it this way. One living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. That's at the core of a disciple-making relationship. Someone's close enough to you to see the way that you live. And that living sort of model is more valuable than the 100 or the 1,000 times you might tell them something. Remember Paul's invitation, follow me as I follow Christ. Here's the reality, though. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You can't model something for someone and try to give away something that's not a core of who you are. That's why last week when we talked about this, we said step one is to be a disciple. You can't be a disciple maker unless you're a disciple yourself. You can't teach someone to follow Jesus if you're not following Jesus to begin with. You don't have to be perfect in your modeling, but you do have to be reliant on a God who is. That means you might stumble in your obedience. In fact, you will stumble in your obedience. But nonetheless, you're modeling what it looks like to wrestle with your own sin and flesh. You're modeling what it looks like to repent when you do sin. You're modeling what it looks like to worship, what it is to engage with the local church, what it is to serve with your gifts, how to proclaim the gospel, what it looks like to view your work as worship and your career as worship. You're modeling what it looks like to faithfully love and serve your spouse and your children. And if you've truly invited someone into this relationship, they're going to be close enough to see it. They're going to be able to watch you do those things. If we were to just boil this down to kind of its... its essence, it's simple and yet super broad. All you've got to do in a disciple-making relationship is model everything that's entailed in following Jesus. Piece of cake. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect at it because part of what it is to follow Jesus is repenting. Part of what it is to follow Jesus is wrestling with the areas where you're broken and where you have sin. And the modeling of that is every bit as important as the modeling of the places where you are faithful and where you are doing a good job and where the Holy Spirit is sanctifying. Model. The next piece is serve. So you invite someone into this relationship, you teach, you model, and then serve. Serving is all about loving someone. John 13, 1, as Jesus is uh, getting ready to go to the cross, the text tells us that having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Having served his own, he served them to the end, all the way to the cross. 
This serving goes two directions. You're going to serve with the person you are discipling. You're also going to serve the person you're discipling. Just a a quick sort of flyby, if you were to read the first three chapters of Mark, you would see Jesus do the following in the presence of the disciples. He drives out an unclean spirit. He heals a number of people who are sick. There are these large crowds following him, longing to be touched by him and to be healed by him, to hear him. And he's always patient as he's moving through those crowds. He's teaching. He's proclaiming the truth of scripture. All the while, the disciples are watching. They see that. Then as you continue on through the gospels, you'll see that Jesus sends them out to serve. 72 of them in pairs. Go and do the things that I have been doing. I mentioned last week that there's the moment where There are 5,000 people who need to be fed and Jesus looks at the disciples and says, you feed them and they do that together. Part of what it is to be in a disciple-making relationship with someone is to see them unlocked and serving within their gifts, serving the big C church, the world, serving the local church, this body of people that you interact with. And that probably means, especially if you're walking alongside someone who's a new believer or a young believer, you're gonna have to roll up your sleeves and get involved in that with them. It doesn't work to just say, hey, by the way, go get yourself plugged in and serve over there. No, you're probably going to have to say, let's go and set up chairs for this thing early. Let's spend a couple of uh, uh, evenings or something volunteering to do child care with the children's ministry. Let's, you know, like put together these bags to give away to people who are less fortunate. In fact, I came home to our house last Sunday and my wife was doing that with a young lady that she... Um, disciples. They've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount and they got to the portion where Jesus talks about those who are less fortunate and that you give to those individuals. So Melody and this young woman, they went to the store together. They bought all of these supplies together. They got some big Ziploc bags. They came home. They filled the bags. Uh, Melody took half. The young woman took half and they've got them in their car. So if they come across somebody who's less fortunate, they can give them this bag full of supplies. Melody didn't say, hey, now this is cool. We read this. You go to the store and do all that. She said, no, we'll do this together. We'll serve together. But you're also going to serve that person. You're going to minister to them. You're going to love them. You're going to support them, encourage them. Sometimes your service is going to include rebuking them or calling out sin in their life. That requires sacrifice on your part. That's at the core of what Jesus came to do. He came into this world in order to glorify the Lord by lovingly and humbly serving the will of the Lord and the need of humanity. That's why Jesus came. Magnify the glory of the Lord by serving the the plan of the Father and the need of humanity. We see that in his patience with the disciples. We see that as he's washing the disciples' feet. We ultimately see it most clearly when Jesus goes to the cross. You serve the person that you're discipling, offering your encouragement, your support, your love, giving comfort when it's needed. We know innately what it is to do this aspect of things in relationship with people. It's a key aspect of what disciple making includes. The fifth element is a commission. In fact, if you just go back to the invitation that Jesus gave, the commission is right there at the beginning. Jesus says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Now you're going to fish for people. Who's going to do the fishing? Jesus? No. The disciples. Simon, Andrew, James, 
John, Matthew, Bartholomew, right? They're going to be the ones that do the fishing. Multiplication was right there at the initial invitation into Jesus's method of disciple making. We saw that last week, 2 Timothy 2.2. What you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Multiplication is right at the front. It's not like a bait and switch. The commission came at the same time as the invitation. When you invite someone into one of these disciple-making relationships, you say up front. And the goal of this is that you would be able to do this as well. That by the time we're done with this, you could invest in a relationship like this with someone else. And yet... At the end of the relationship, at the end of Jesus' time with the disciples, he gives them the commission again. That's Matthew 28, the great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He launches them out into this. That commission at the end of their time with Jesus would have come as no surprise to the disciples. Maybe the timing wasn't what they expected. Maybe the end of Jesus' life didn't look exactly like they thought it was going to look. But when he told them to go and make disciples, they knew that was coming because he'd already told them at the invitation that they were going to fish for men. Robert Coleman, again, says it this way, that his whole evangelistic strategy, Jesus' whole evangelistic strategy, depended on the faithfulness of his chosen disciples to the task. You're inviting someone into a relationship where you're going to teach and model and serve and ultimately where they know that they're going to have this commission to go and to do the same. One of the great joys of being a disciple maker is when you arrive at this point where you're looking at this other individual and you think, you can do this. And so you become like mama bird in the nest, right? Like kick them out of there. And then they start flapping their wings and it's kind of frantic and feathers are flying everywhere, but all of a sudden they start to fly because they can do this process too. And you get the chance to speak that into them and kind of to encourage them and embolden them and help them believe that they can go and do likewise. And not only that they can, but that they should because we've been commanded to do so. That is all that uh, is kind of distilled down. That's what disciple making involves. You can invite someone into a relationship and be intentional. You can teach someone about who God is and what it looks like to follow Jesus. You can model what it looks like to sometimes fumble your way forward in that, but at other times to see the Holy Spirit bring victory in your life. You can serve with and serve another person. You can commission someone and be the champion for them while they go and do likewise. This is a process that anyone can do. Anyone. You might think to yourself, well, where do you even start with that? Let me give you an easy starting place. Sit down with somebody and open up the Word of God. You don't have to be a master at it. You don't have to have all of the answers, but you can sit down across the table from one another, open up a passage of Scripture, read it, seek to understand it, help them understand it, take away what the application is, and then say, let's apply this in our lives. And then go and do that. That's disciple-making. You can invite them over for dinner. Take them along with you whenever you're, you're... going to the grocery store, whenever you're going to do you know, some menial task that seems meaningless to you, but you can infuse a bunch of meaning into that, when you bring someone alongside you, you can invite them close enough to hear you talk about the struggles at your work and what it looks like to walk faithfully through those, what it looks like to get bad health news in your own life or to have struggles with your children or difficulty in a marriage. You can invite someone close enough to see that and to see how it is that the gospel impacts 
that. That's what disciple making is. It doesn't have to be some big mystery. It doesn't have to be a difficult sort of task that only those who are in full-time ministry can, can undertake. We know that's the case because the original 11 that did it didn't meet the mold that I just described. They were ordinary individuals. Who are you looking for on the other side of this relationship? If this is what goes into disciple making, what kind of person are you looking for to start this process with? I'm going to use an acronym that Downline Ministries, which is a discipleship training uh, ministry, uses. And uh, the three characteristics they say to look for in someone that you want to enter into a disciple-making relationship with are that that person is faithful, available, and teachable. The acronym is FAT. They tell you to look for fat people. That has nothing to do with their size. It has to do with some qualities about them. The individual is faithful. Uh, maybe the, the chief sort of frustration that happens when we're trying to do a discipleship process with someone is that it seems like the person on the other side isn't very interested. We're going to read this book together or we're going to uh, meet together at a certain time, but they're like always standing you up or they're never reading the thing that you said to read. They're not faithful to follow through the process. It's okay to go ahead and say, you know what, maybe a different season of your life would be the right time to do this and to step back away from that relationship. You're looking for someone who's available. Sometimes we, we're looking around and we want to disciple someone and we kind of look across the room and we say, oh, I'd love to disciple that person because they seem like we've got all the same interests and we would be easy friends or whatever the case might be. We find out that person's maybe not the most faithful or their life season's too busy to do that. And so we keep chasing there and we get frustrated. All the while, there are these people already around you who are available. They would love nothing more than to have that intentionality injected into your relationship and we're overlooking them. We need to be aware of who's available. And then last, the person is teachable. They're humble. They're willing to take whatever instruction it is that you're giving, whether that's from scripture or what, what it is that you're trying to model. Or they're willing to serve alongside you and to learn and to grow in that sort of way. Faithful, available, teachable. That's the kind of individual you're looking to enter into these relationships with. Uh, we're going to take communion. If you're someone who uh, is going to pass that out, would you come and grab this and start that process? As these get passed along the rows, you'll see that there are two stacks of two cups. There's uh, the juice on top and there's a wafer underneath. If you need gluten-free, there's gluten-free wafers in the middle. I want, to, uh, I want to end with this. You might have the question, am I qualified to do this? And last week I said, reality is that you're probably closer to being qualified than you think you are. And let me explain that. When you consider all the tools and resources and support and advantages that you have in the 21st century Western church, you are more than qualified to do this process. In fact, you're infinitely more qualified than the 11 disciples who sat with Jesus that day when he gave them the Great Commission. What's more important than any of that, more important than the resources and the tools and the, the modern church kind of supporting you in this, what's more important is that is that you have the same empowering grace and indwelling Holy Spirit that creates within you not just the ability to undertake this calling, but also brings fruit to it in the midst of it. If the original 11 there could make disciples in the manner that they did without written Bibles or mass communication methods or easy travel means and whatnot, we can do it from our cushy American suburbs. I promise you that.
If those 11, though largely uneducated, were qualified to engage in relationships with others in order to see the gospel spread and believers equipped, then you are infinitely more so. The difference is one of willingness and conviction and commitment. We can do this process. We have the same Holy Spirit empowering us to do this that the first disciples had in the first century after Jesus died. We just need the willingness to engage, the conviction to carry the process through, and the commitment to do this as a lifestyle for a lifetime. Disciple making is a relational process that begins with an invitation and ends with a commission. We're going to take communion this morning and I want to kind of direct our our reflecting a bit. When we come to the table to take communion, when we do this as a church, we join together in reflecting on Jesus' death on the cross. We join together in thinking about Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. We join together in order to participate in Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. We join together in order to celebrate the glorious blessings that we have because of his death. What I want us to do today uh, in that process is also spend a minute reflecting on the reality that this has meaning, Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, because of Jesus' life. It was a sinless and a perfect life that makes it so that his broken body and poured out blood could be the sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all of humanity. That's the reason why salvation's possible, the reason why we join together in this act to remember his death. And so while we're looking at his, his death on the cross, I want us to spend a moment here reflecting on his life. In the same way that we join in his body and his blood, we join in his life and his mission. In the same way that we participate in his crucifixion and his resurrection, would we also participate in his method and his practice? Would we celebrate his death for us, but also share in his life? And sharing in that life means that we engage in this process. We seek to make disciples so that the world would come to know of this great grace and this great mercy. What I want to do is um, I want to take a minute We've been doing this the first of the month, each month, and spend a second in quiet reflection. Reflection of Christ's death, spend a minute in quiet reflection on his life, and spend a minute kind of examining your heart. Where are you in this process of matching the master's method? Where are you in this process of making disciples? Is there an unwillingness? Not just a, I feel like I'm incapable, But maybe inside of you, you say to yourself, I'm just not willing to do it. It might cost me too much time. It might take too much effort. I don't know if I have all the answers. Those are heart level questions that when we look at the cross, we see the the distance Christ went in order to make this possible for us, we're forced to reflect on. on. And so I want to give you um, a minute or so here just in silence to spend some time in silent prayer, thanking the Lord for his sacrifice but also inviting him in to challenge us into his method and his practice.
I'm going to read a section from a prayer here, and then we'll take communion together. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. He was surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. Athirst, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Made a shame, that I might inherit glory. He entered darkness, that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept, that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned, that I might have endless song. Endured all pain, that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorny crown, that I might be given a glorious diadem. He bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might live forever. This is Christ's body broken for you. This is his blood poured out for you. Let's worship together a Savior that was crucified on our behalf, but also left us with a mission to go and make disciples.